0: Hi, my name is Chloe Dutschke and welcome to the SciRise Sessions. We're shining the light on entrepreneurship in cybersecurity and uncovering some of the most authentic stories from cybersecurity startup founders. SciRise is a venture accelerator program funded by NTT Global and Deakin University. Our guest for this episode is Wesley Huffstutter. He's a serial entrepreneur and US expat now living in Brisbane, where he's currently the entrepreneur in residence for QUT. He was the co-founder and CEO of Quadmetrics, knows a lot about the cybersecurity startup landscape both here and in the States. So we welcome Wesley. Wesley, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Always a pleasure. You're a serial entrepreneur and U.S. expat living in Brisbane, sunny Brisbane, Australia. Currently entrepreneur in residence for Queensland University of Technology. And you were also the co-founder and CEO of Quadmetrics, which was ultimately acquired by FICO. So fascinating background to this combination of academia and entrepreneurship and not always an easy marriage, those two things. but. The tech for Quadmetrics was developed at the University of Michigan. So I'm really keen to kick off there. How does one dance in both of these fields, academia and entrepreneurship? Tell us about that story.
1: Yeah, I mean, my background has been startups. I've done startups for over 20 years. And so my role in academia was helping start companies based on research. one of the projects I worked on... Was with a couple inventors inside the University of Michigan, and this is a technology that had been, or a project that had started out, really focused on internet measurement, and had evolved over the years towards security because the, the details they were getting from that scale information they could actually figure out risk of organizations. So think about the reputation of IP addresses. So that is where that technology sort of started, and I was working helping them start the company and one thing sort of led to another and and I ended up co-founding it with them becoming CEO and leaving the university to, to run it.
0: And how, was that a big step to make? How did that decision play out for you?
1: It, I mean, it wasn't. I was, I, you know, part of maybe my personality, I, I sort of dig in and get obsessed with the problem. And it was really fascinating because not only could we help an organization reduce their own risk, give them details down to the IP address about the behaviors of their organization, their management team in terms of, of cybersecurity. But also because we were doing this completely from the outside and, and without permission, we didn't need permission. This is what they were making publicly available. We could actually help them assess third-party risk, which mm. became really important. You know, JPMorgan Chase, Home Depot, Target, these were all famous sort of third-party breaches. And so looking at that data, we were able to We could help organizations look at their partners and vendors of people they are working with, because sometimes it's not just your security, but the people you'd like to work with. And providing information even help them make sort of those decisions. So we wouldn't necessarily say just because someone's security is bad doesn't mean you shouldn't work with them. We'd say at least you go in sort of eyes wide open and you're able to understand what that risk is and maybe even contractually mitigate some of that risk by setting things up or forcing them to use something, let's say it's multi-factor authentication or something along those lines, because they were the chance of them being breached was high and it was most likely identity. And so we could give them that sort of level of detail and they could take action. And the other part of that is if you can do third-party risk, you could also... Be able to determine the likelihood of an organization being breached, which we were giving as a probability, and our prediction accuracy was greater than 90 percent in terms of predicting whether an organization would be breached within the next year, this is really important for cyber insurance. And so that mm-hmm. is a space we really started to dig into quite a bit. There's about two and a half billion right now in premiums being underwritten annually and for a lot of organizations, trying to understand and assess that risk is nearly impossible, especially since the the information they're getting is either incomplete or just wholly inaccurate, like they fill out a survey or something along those lines. And so being able to determine that from the outside. And so that's what we were doing and, and really became obsessed with those problems. And I was becoming more obsessed with those problems and understanding those problems and and, and digging in while with my university hat on. And it just sort of spiraled into let's just keep going with this.
0: I love that. And you've mentioned problems, which is the magic P word, <laughs> a number of times. And I think that's such an important thing to always come back to, to focus on when you're developing a solution is the problem. So you're looking out there into the market, seeing what the real pain points are and finding a solution that can help versus the other way around, which, especially when it's, you know, if you're a technical founder who, has such a fascination and interest and talent in building software it can often be the first thing you want to do rather than looking out to see what problems you can solve
1: well yeah i mean i'm a computer scientist by degree and we as engineers we tend to want to we see a problem we just want to engineer a solution we Mm -hmm. don't always think about what is the right thing to be building And anyone who's ever been mentored by me probably hears the same thing over and over again, which is, it's a lot easier to sell painkillers than it is to sell vitamins. What happens when you take a vitamin? What happens when you stop taking a vitamin? You sort of, nothing. You you, you don't know, you don't feel any different when you take it, but do the same thing with a painkiller, right? Your knee hurts, you take a painkiller, pain goes away. Painkiller wears off, pain comes back. Pain is measurable. In the business world, this is often time or money. Sometimes you could think about it risk or efficiencies or those sort of things, but this is, it all comes down to usually time or money. And you have to think about those. What is the pain that I'm, I'm solving? There's a lot of things that are out there that, oh, it'd be really nice if, but that's really hard to convert sales on. Doesn't mean you can't do it. And I, you know, I had an entrepreneur tell me, but well, people make a lot of money selling vitamins. I said, absolutely they do, but it's a lot harder to convince people to buy a vitamin than it is when, when they actually have a real problem. And so everything sort of maps back to that. And we kind of touched on academia. And academia is often doing this backwards. Mm-hmm. So when we look at, you know, tech transfer, research commercialization, those sort of things, faculty and, and professors, they're, they're looking to answer questions about science sometimes or do feats of engineering. So we took a chip and we made it smaller. Or mm-hmm. we wanted to find out the mechanism of action for this cell, or whatever it may be but that doesn't necessarily have a real world application. So what happens is is, is tech transfer offices and research organizations who have commercial arms are in in a way working backwards. They're saying, okay, where does the size of this little, making this chip smaller actually matter? Are people complaining about the quality of X, even though you made, you know, we took something the size of a a table and made it the size of a watch, which is fantastic, but what are the applications now if it's a watch, right? Because it was really just about making it smaller. For them to be able to say, well, look, we took something this big and made it smaller, but it didn't necessarily have a real world problem. And so trying to figure out those sort of things becomes quite difficult and and putting your brain around and talking to different people. I remember at the University of Michigan, one of these great stories was one of those is technology that came out of of mechanical engineering. And it was a a professor who was looking at examining cutting fluids. So when when you machine something, you're using a fluid to reduce tool wear and reduce the temperature. And so he was examining cutting fluids, and looking for you know pieces of metal and that kind of stuff to know when to replace. And that and someone on the life science side of the house said, "You ever tried running blood through it?" Mm. And it turned out it was a great flow cytometer. And they ended up starting a company called Accuri, sold it to Beck and Dickinson. And you know these, but it's that it's that cross-pollination that sometimes is really important where you get a bunch of mechanical engineers around and we're all looking at one sort of problem when you bring in a life science person, which I'm clearly not, they're able to, to look at it in a different direction and say, you know, that technology might apply to something else.
0: Yeah, and that the extra set of eyes and the, you know, someone with a different contextual view can be so beneficial when you're looking at something deeply technical. How have you seen that applied in the realm of, startups especially when they've come from this deeply technical solution to then be applied you know we talked about the reverse engineering i mean in some cases that can work what have you seen in that way
1: in general it is great to surround yourself with other really smart people period Mm -hmm. having a diverse team vastly important regardless of your startup getting those different viewpoints leveraging mentors mentors mentorship is is Everyone sort of knows it's been this sort of not so secret secret of the success of Silicon Valley, right? The Startup Genome Project, many, many years ago, when they first did that, that first study, pointed out that startups with an effective mentor grew, I believe it was seven times. No, they raised seven times the capital and had three and a half times more user growth just by having an effective mentor. That is, I mean, that is how these organizations scale. They get that out, especially for first time entrepreneurs. You know, I've always believed you need three things for a successful venture. You need the right technology, and I'll include idea or business model, whatever makes you unique. You need the right people and you need money. Mm. Well, if you have the right technology and the right people, the money is really easy because that's all money's looking for is that combination. If you're struggling yeah. to raise capital, you're probably lacking in one or both. And on the people side of things, right, if the technology's there and the people's not, if you're a first time entrepreneur, you are at risk. How do you reduce that risk? Well, you surround yourself by people who have already been there and done that. You create a board or advisory board of, of, of successful serial entrepreneurs. That's kind of how you reduce that risk. You leverage their pattern recognition on top of your own, and mm. that can. I mean, that part of it is so vitally important. And even for me, about running quad metrics, peer mentors. There, I mean, I will tell you. To me personally, one of the most valuable relationships I had was with another senior exec at a security company named Paul DeMarzo, who I trusted his strategic advice, and I was willing to openly disclose sort of everything that was going on in my organization with him because I valued his opinion. And he could tell me, Wes, you're full of shit, or he could tell me, here's what I see, or, you know, heads up, we're further along than you are. Here is a roadblock. Here's a pothole that you need to avoid in your path and so those sort of things and having someone like that and i relied on multiple people and i've had mentors throughout my my career dave hartman was another one at, at the university who I, I really valued serial entrepreneur working with startups for fun and really really kind of dug down into what is the core of of, of the problems with or, or with a technology or of the market and i'm more of a market focused person i you know the best technology doesn't win there's heaps and heaps of examples of, of that. Technologists, engineers tend to think, well, our technology is better than everyone else. And I keep pointing out that people buy Microsoft products over Apple. And, you know, we, we, we do that. I mean, Apple is a superior product. You have to pay more yeah. for it, but it's not, it doesn't have the market share. And we can point mm-hmm. to many examples of, of a, a better executed plan that led to greater success than the actual better technology.
0: We hear time and time again, especially for early stage entrepreneurs where it might be a very small team or perhaps not even a, a, a team at all yet. It's lonely. Such a lonely path. And to know that you have other people you can confide in who have done it before or are doing it simultaneously is is important to Sense check the up and down, the roller coaster that is entrepreneurship, and yeah, just to really support you in that journey, which we know is not an easy one. So I think it's a great reminder.
1: Hundred percent. Yeah. No, it is. It is very lonely, and having someone to sort of commiserate with is great. And everyone has their you point to almost any successful entrepreneur and, and whether they say it publicly, they'll, they'll, they'll miss a the name. Like I just did with Paul, there's, there are, there are people who kind of are that sanity check to make sure that I'm not crazy. I, you know, I feel alone. I feel the one responsible. I'm the one sweating, making sure that, that the paychecks are, are still coming. And, you know, for, for me, when, with quad metrics, we were going to raise capital. That was absolutely the plan. Mm. And, we got an unsolicited offer. Um, we weren't quite ready to raise. I was still socializing, so I was talking to VCs. And for all the the entrepreneurs out there who aren't ready to raise capital, you should be talking with potential investors because they will not be able to pull the trigger quickly until they're tracking you and seeing that you're following through on the things that you say you're going to doing. And so I had regular updates with quite a few VCs. And we were going down that path where we would probably we were going to raise, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of this, we had we got this unsolicited offer from from an organization. And Mm. I wouldn't say it was it was a bit out of the blue. We hadn't heard from them in a while. We had initially talked to them because we thought they might be a, a a partner, but we also didn't want them to come into the space because they had the name Australians won't know, but FICO is a is a a big name in in fraud and in Analytics. For in the US, everyone's sort of creditworthiness is based on a FICO score. We knew all of our competitors were calling themselves the FICO score for cybersecurity. We set out to become the FICO score, sitting inside the University of Michigan around a table with you know the tech transfer staff and the, the, the team that was forming around this company of Quadmetrics. We decided we were going to be the FICO score for cybersecurity. That was our goal. And FICO is starting to get into, because they do anomaly detection, people don't realize it's like something along the lines of 90% of all payment card transactions are going through them and their algorithms. They, they're the, the, their Falcon fraud detection is what rejects payment cards for fraud. Uh, it's often sitting inside a, a payment processor like First Data. And we know that they could do anomaly detection really well, and they could do that potentially on packets as things are being sent across the internet. Mm-hmm. And we, would, we were sort of both interested in their data and collaborating with them, but also we, we reached out to them to, in, in a way, put a flag in the ground saying the FICO score is, is you know, you can, you can do that, but we've got something that's highly predictive and, and highly accurate based on science, and they are a very science-focused organization. They have a is sort of a head of AI who, who's really, really deep into the weeds when it comes to, to technology and, and AI and very specific ways of doing things that are predictive. Because for them, predictive matters and not mm-hmm. just providing a score that is representative of something. And so we thought there might be a chance to collaborate. They said you know, we did not ask to become the FICO score. We know that our, our competitors were getting cease and desist letters from them from calling themselves the FICO score for cybersecurity. We did not ask for that, but we wanted to to stake a claim, sort of in the ground. And so, at at one point, we were get preparing to go to a big security conference in San Francisco, and which is RSA. And mm-hmm. I got an email, I opened it up, and it it, it was an offer. And, wow! <laughs> and so it, it was one of those things. That, and we rejected it, by the way. And so uh, we we met them at RSA. We had dinner, and I you know it's. It, it, saying we pretty much had different plans. And this wasn't, wasn't the first time there was a, a competitor who was, was saying we'd like to acquire you in, in something of an all stock deal, which to me wasn't all that interesting because we were already playing that game. There had to be at least some cash in there. And then we also had a, um, another well-known security company talking to their corporate dev, dev arm and that one didn't pan out as well, partially because we kept we were a very transparent organization my engineers, our very small team at the time, knew of of the interest from these companies, and uh, they they did not want to work for the big security company. They were interested in working for FICO, which says a lot about FICO. And mm. and ultimately, FICO came back with an improved offer, which we accepted. But that really wasn't the plan. Our plan was to come big and, and grow, and and you know maybe. Over beers, off, uh, you know, off public. They go into the, the strategy of, of why and we made some of the decisions we made and when, why we decided to do that. But maybe not necessarily. I always like to go public with all those sort of things. But yeah. it, I, think, I think it was absolutely the right strategic move for us at that time. It was also important to know that sales cycles are difficult in general. And we know that FICO could have played the game of we're going to jump into that market and not come out with anything, and that would slow down all my sales. So if I raised capital, then that capital is going to have to last me another 6 to 12 months longer because everyone might have been waiting to see what FICO was going to come out with before buying. Uh, this mm-hmm. was a tactic that for years, you know, the HPs and Microsofts have used in the world. When, they, when they're when they getting a little bit behind a competitor, they say, we're going to come out with that. And so that slows down the sales and then it's the startups that often struggle and then they either acquire them or, or let them die and, and go back to business as normal. So you have to sort of plan around those sort of things. Yeah. But we're all quite happy with, with FICO.
0: I mean, that's such a fascinating story, especially to get the offer out of the blue. First of all, you never know who's watching and obviously you'd had those conversations with them prior to that point, but people you know, the industry is small <laughs> people look and see what's happening around and so that, I mean, that bodes well for people who might feel like they're the little guy in a sea of big fish and to know that acquisition is an option and, and can be a great one. I'm interested to know, you mentioned about, you know, there's a lot of details in, that go into that decision-making, keep, you know, down the path of funding versus not and you've highlighted some of those, which is great. The one thing I want to focus on or ask you a little bit more about is the idea that it felt like a good fit. And we've heard this before when it comes to acquisition, that there's something about having your startup baby. So, you know, QuadMetrics, go to a good home. Was that part of the decision making for you? And how important is that in the long term, do you think?
1: So it becomes important when they're acquiring, you know, if, if, if this were an asset sale where they just wanted our technology and that was it, that would be different. But this is clearly an equity sale, right? They, they wanted us, they wanted our brains, they wanted our people, our talent. And we have the talent. And you know the thing, the thing that was important for us in this situation was is they believed in our technology, which was great. They sold us on the vision which they would like to do with our technology and how they wanted us to grow and what their greater plans about bringing security in, adding security as, as services to, to FICO. And so we, we also agreed that, that I mean, as a, as a team, that's what, and they wanted to work there. They were, our engineers were obsessed with the problem. The, the FICO was, was really obsessed and interested in that problem. And, and we felt like we were on the same page. You know, we can get into, you know, they, they wanted to make our product look more like theirs and we like the way ours looked But these are, these are fine points, right? The kind of the, the user experience, I think, probably changed a little bit because we, you know, we had a different color palette and we, we didn't have the freedom to do those sort of things. And yeah. when you become a part of a big organization, the ability to change something, we were much more nimble. We could see something and change it where there was more protocol that comes with running a large organization. That's going to be frustrating for every startup. And we knew that going in that that's the way it was going to be.
0: And you mentioned team. So how important was that aspect and being able to maintain, you know, some of that culture, which is about being agile as well. And you've just outlined that it's more difficult in a larger organization. How did you maintain that culture? And what was that like for that transition period for the team?
1: You know, the acquiring company is going to sort of be clear about what people's roles are going to be going forward and that kind of stuff. And there's a bit of negotiation. They're talking with, you know me and others about what the, what the ideal role for those people would, and how we see them fitting in the organization, and what's important, and how they and what the role they play to us, and their and how vital they are. We were such a small team; um, it wasn't like we were, you know, a hundred people spread across everywhere. It was really just the seven, eight of us at the time. Um, we were mm-hmm. in the process of hiring more, and we knew sort of what the, everyone's role is. We knew I knew. It, I was the because I was the only non engineer of the team I, in other words i was the I was the suit, not the geek and I knew from the beginning that my role was going to be temporary there. I was just going to be there long enough that I was going to transition our product over to their branded version and then
0: mm-hmm.
1: we would go back and 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 i would I would go off and do my own thing and most of the team is still there there's only uh one I think that is left um maybe two or has come back i don't know but i generally try to keep track of them they one, one may have left and come back but nonetheless you know the, the core team is still there they grew that team as as we were sort of transitioning but the culture of it is is you know i firmly believe in hiring people who are really talented who can you know one everyone on the team is smarter than me That's I don't want to hire anyone who's, who's not, which is not a high bar in my opinion. But <laughs> the, the key here is, is that they're really, really good at what they do. That's why we hired them. We were tracking people for, that we were trying to bring on who were, we were unsuccessful at bringing on, but we kept track of where they were and, and we really wanted them to, to, to join at some point. We, we had enough money. We had a, a, hopefully a, a more even more compelling proposition for them at some point in the future, but a couple of them ended up starting their own companies, which was, which is pretty great. But um, so we were always looking to have that team of, of, and and trust them. You know, I look at, we hired interns. We being close to, you know, right next to the university of Michigan, coming out of the university of Michigan, we hired interns, both uh, undergraduate and graduate. uh, And we didn't throw them on sort of remedial tasks. I don't believe in that. That's mm. the intern never gets anything out of that. The company doesn't get anything out of it. You just wasted time and money. So we had we had engineers. We threw them right into things that that were really important and critical to us. And when they know it's critical, they perform better. We had a, a engineer, uh, a, a young engineering student who we threw at developing a behind the firewall. Box that was doing the same kind of analysis we were doing on the outside, but on the inside of their network. And mm-hmm. this is something that my other engineer could have done in a, in a lot faster time, but it allowed him to continue to focus. And we were able to use this intern to create something that was actually turned into a product that actually shipped. It was basically based on a Raspberry Pi, same form factor. Plug it in, mm-hmm. and everything was ready to go. And we handled all that. And and this is the intern could actually point on a CV, say, "See that product in the market? I created that. That was me." We had two separate master level students in human-computer interaction, focused on usability and our interface. And they could point to the, the changes that they had made and we will you know, show everyone what they did. They were working on something. We didn't just throw them in the background and make them do remedial stuff. They did stuff that they can point to. It's a portfolio of, of things that they have done. And it was very, very critical to what we did. And, we, and it turned out they were all fantastic.
0: The, I love that because I think that's applicable in so many settings in startup land, but beyond, it's the idea of, you know, valuing your team members and giving them the opportunity to give value back. Um, None of this remedial nonsense tasks for anyone really, like you want to, any high functioning team, it's important that people feel valued.
1: And if you don't trust them enough to do the, the sort of the work autonomously, why did you hire them? And and we understand that people have to wear many hats in a startup. That that you want versatile people, and you and, and there are people who who say, you know, I really don't understand. I'm I'm not I'm uncomfortable in doing. You know, I'm a back end person. I don't do front end work, and I you know I don't. Mm-hmm. But the the key is is not that they. You have to trust that they're going to be able to do what it is that you need to do, and they understand. Uh, they you know. I hold them accountable, they hold me accountable. We told them where we were with, with sales, even though they don't have anything related to sales. We offered all the feedback, what we were hearing in in pitches. So when every time I was pitching to a uh, a potential customer and regardless of the market, we were very open about that. It was many times where we'd have uh, maybe an engineer sitting in on the call just to listen, to see what they were kind of things they were talking about, what information they needed, this was really more important as we ex- explored the the cyber insurance space, because in many cases, the the customer didn't actually know what they wanted. Once you have an additional piece of information, it makes you think, okay, well I have that, maybe I want this now too. And hearing that from them and, and it kind of, you know, making sure that we can reprioritize. We don't just do what everything that the customer wants, but at the same time, look, they're, they're, this is actually a pain, you know, the, the notion of risk aggregation within a portfolio became, became something that, well, we could actually do that too. And that's a big problem because that keeps coming up in these conversations. And so, you know, having the engineers around most, all of our our demos were, were done with both me as CEO and Manish, our CTO. And as a, as a tag team, again, I'm the suit, he's the geek. And, and, you know, we answer the wide swatch of, you know, questions as you know, but many people who are certainly in the cybersecurity space know that you might have uh, CISOs, uh, chief information security officers, kind of fall into two camps for me. Mm. You have the the deep in the weeds technical former hacker, uh, you know, kind of a maybe a a red hat kind of 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 person who really wants to dig in and, and, and code the ones and zeros, and, and they are one kind of CISO. The other is the maybe more NBA risk-focused type, looking at the organization and the strategy and that kind of stuff, not always as, as deeply technical, certainly can translate sort of technology or, or business case into technology words, but it, there's, there's that other side, more of a, a, a management of risk. And so having both of us, we were able to do, do those conversations with people, depending, and sometimes you have one of each of those people on a call, and so for us it was really great. So we could, I could have you know Manish go in the weeds of of the the cybersecurity, and I could go into the weeds of the of the market and the business case, and 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 how this improves the their products or their or what it, they're doing and reduces their risk.
0: What are some of your tips for? early stage customer discovery conversations or customer acquisition conversations. So when you're working, just say, with enterprise and perhaps you don't have that business suit persona developed quite yet, how are some ways you can hack those conversations or really optimize those conversations for a good outcome for your business?
1: Well, I I do think that you need to probably have a, a diverse team Solo founder, I mean, man, I mean, it's lonely enough being, being a founder of a, of a multi-person company. I can't imagine what it's like, um, the isolation of, of being a sole founder and, and going solo. That's got to be really, so I would reach out and, and develop a team. So th- there's certainly the aspect of it. Again, you know, when it comes to customer acquisition, having two people on a call is great if you if you're struggling with the business case i think you're still struggling with go to market i think that even if you don't have that that business aspect you've got to know that business of the product the the market you're in uh looking at how it's if someone is going to be selling into that to a to a market for them and not have sort of a business case for it as well because ultimately Mm -hmm. this is a purchasing decision and there has to be a business case to justifying parting with money and if you don't sort of have that, you haven't done enough customer discovery. And you know, reach out, get help on that customer discovery. Talk to mentors. Go to accelerator programs like Rise or others where you can actually have help doing that. And understand. Talk to a wide range of people. Get told, you know, your baby's ugly, and that you need to change it. As a sort of joke, as a mentor, sometimes it's my job to tell people their baby's ugly. Yes. But the good news <laughs> is, is, it's not. You know. I know that's sort kind of a crass way of saying it, but the key part here is that with a business, with a a business model, you can change it. Right? It doesn't stay ugly for long. Mm-hmm. And and find out, hone in on on what it is. Because if you build a a a product with you as the target, right? I had a problem, this is my problem, I built a product to solve it, now I'm trying to sell it. You've got to market with an N of one You. Yeah. Right. However, if you tweak it right if you if it's if it's a little bit different, you go out and talk to people and realize if I just change it, it's not quite what I was after, but now that in is is much much larger, and it's a, it's a sustainable business.
0: I think that's great advice. it's inevitable that you're going to have to change things, and what you perhaps dreamt up would be the ideal, perfect solution. It's not actually one that people want to buy. So getting over that hurdle of, well, actually what I've built is great, but to make a business out of it, I need to do X, Y, and Z, and I need to have those hard conversations and just having conversations. I know that sometimes that is the first hurdle to even want to communicate what you're doing in a way that is customer discovery versus just sharing the project you're working on. That's, that's a, a switch that often needs to be flipped where it's, adopting that mindset of curiosity about, you know, what's going on in the market, what are the pain points, how can the skills that I've got and the passion that I've got be applied to that problem at hand and really exploring that space, looking at it as a good thing rather than a hindrance or a hurdle. And I think that's a mindset shift that once you get there as a founder, then it makes everything else that much easier.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, we... we, sometimes entrepreneurs are going at sort of customer discovery a bit in the wrong way, right? They're, they're using it as a pitch of their idea and Mm -hmm. that's a hundred percent the wrong way to do it. And, you know, I, as I, as I tell entrepreneurs, you know, if I tell you the best color for a phone is black, name a color of a phone, black's going to be the first thing that comes to your mind. I've, I've sort of led the witness Mm-hmm. And and getting back to sort of that painkiller versus vitamin, And you know, if you say I've you know, I, I, here's my idea, you know, would you buy it? And they say yes. That's that's the wrong answer. The right answer is I've got to have that. This solves a big problem. mine. can I be your beta tester? Right. This gets to, towards that urgency that, that this is a pain. I it, is this ready right now? Right. That gets more towards pay because everyone's going to say yeah, I'd buy it. You know. I could say in my pocket, I have the new iPhone 24 or whatever the next number is, right? It's way out there. Would you buy it? Yeah, I'd buy it. 10 grand, please. No, thank you. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so that happens all the time. And so what happens is as people go out and they pitch their idea and people confirm that idea, that is actually really a bad way of doing customer discovery. The whole point of customer discovery is you know you have your idea nailed when you ask questions about problems pains and they start pitching your idea to you that's when you know you have it
0: on that the idea of early stage customers we talk a lot about this um, with other founders and within the program itself about qualifying out leads like not the, the idea that not everyone is your customer what are some of your tips on having those conversations so being able to find those who are advocates for your product and have the pain point versus those who don't. We've touched on it just briefly now with the idea that everyone, if you lead them to saying yes, they'll buy your product, will say yes. What are some other ways that you can be sure you're partnering up with the right customers, especially at an early stage
1: I mean, it's a really tough question to answer because <laughs> if I had the ultimate sales solution, boy, I'd be selling everything. Um, no, it's
0: <laughs> I was hoping, I was hoping you might. We we could have made a lot of money with.
1: I've got all these magic beans here. Um, <laughs> it's, it's all about understanding that pain, right? And we we at startups, the tendency, and everyone falls into this trap, regardless of, of probably who you are, is is seeking revenue for revenue's sake, not necessarily staying to your core business. So we we, as I mentioned before, with Quadmetrics, we had three separate markets, and as a entrepreneur, that can be quite difficult, right? Because it's three different value propositions, and three different personas of who they are and we had to start picking one that we were going to do so we started off with really focus on reducing the risk of organizations we had several customers quite quickly trying to assess their own personal risk and then providing details down to the ip address of things they need to do to reduce their own risk we could provide that quickly and that's how we started out we developed a a reseller for that space we made a few other sales based on some connections i had then we really started pushing towards cyber insurance, which meant getting and developing relationships, some of which I still maintain today, and uh, truly understanding the problem and the difficult task at hand, but how big the problem was. Because certainly at the time we were doing this, there were people who were just creating a quantified score or a letter grade on risk, but it actually doesn't translate to anything. While ours was a straight up probability. Now, if you want to think about risk, risk is the probability of a negative incident occurring. So we have that probability, and that was what our big value was. And it was based in science, legitimate science. We published a paper. I say we, it's not me. It was the academic who was associated with our company. She was a chief science officer, and she and her team published it in a top-tier conference on called USENIC, USENIC Security specifically. And uh, it was sort of a this seminal paper about this risk called "Cloudy with a Chance of Breach," and that sort of shared what we were doing. It, it, she's clever uh, and, and super, super smart. We were uh, just—I'm so lucky to work with with smart women like that. And she, you know, she was able to to develop the, these models that that you know we didn't we didn't give away everything in that in the paper, but we what, we what we did is we put it in a in a position where people could sort of validate what we were doing and see that the science was real. And that this wasn't mm-hmm. just hocus pocus and letter grades. And, and we failed at, at doing bot detection, but we see bots out there. So we're going to assign a score to the number of bots that we see, you know, or, you know, we see these sort of things, so we're just going to assign a score. These things at, you know, we use artificial intelligence, say machine learning, and hit every ITP address in the world every day, gathered negative data sets, right? If you, everything was good, that's fine. If you were bad, then we kept track. Mm-hmm. And we did this for the entire internet, which you know people talk about big data. We had we had big data. Um, <laughs>
0: it's a lot of data. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like,
1: like, yeah, I'm interested in big data. I'm like, what is big data? They're like, oh, I don't know. You know, it's like a, a hundred rows or you know a million. Like, <laughs> we're adding. How more about the internet? There week. we go we were doing something that was really, really unique in in that space. And as a result, we were able to gain some sort of reputation as we moved into the space, understanding the critical, you know, sort of getting back to sort of the the acquisition of customers is now we had this value proposition because we were working with cyber insurance. There's the business side of the people who are, Who are doing the sales, whether it's brokers or direct to people who are doing the underwriting or trying to assess the risk. But, you know, there's, there's also these actuaries as well. They're sitting inside and and outside organizations and, and treating it as, you know, well, we can do a Monte Carlo simulation just like we do for hurricanes. And, you know, I, I ask if hurricanes have intent because, you know, as far as I know, mother nature doesn't have intent, hackers do. And so it, you know, sort of changes that dynamic. You can't just use the the traditional methods that they were using before. And so they these cyber insurance companies at the time were using revenue, number of employees, and industry sectors, the three primary ways they were determining risk. Have nothing to do with security. Mm. Have they, I mean, they have a little bit to do with the fact that I might be sitting on information that people want. If I have a lot of employees, I have a lot of data. If I have, you know, if I'm in financial services, I have data and information that people want, but it doesn't necessarily mean that all banks are going to be the same because they meet the same criteria of of revenue and and employees. And we could point to that in in organizations who are really good at security in a space and really bad at security in a space.
0: So it's identifying that, I mean, like you said, you had the three-pronged approach, which is, which can happen, especially early on if you've got applications for a number of use cases, but then it sounds like you found that sweet spot and that also was part of your market differentiation. So if you've come from that really strong science background, what you've got is credibility, which is so important, particularly in cybersecurity.
1: We had we had three different paths. So we had three different shots on goal if we wanted it. We really started to focus. Mm. And, and so the key of the customer acquisition is really sort of narrowing it down who is the right target? And what is that persona map of them? What are they like? What is the size of the insurance company? Who are the ones who are intellectually curious and adapt new technologies earlier than the ones who are fast followers? What are the big pain points that they have? At the time when we were were doing cyber insurance and, and predicting risk, many of these organizations were saying, well, you know what? Our insurance company is bigger than theirs. And we will underwrite a lot of this. We know we might lose money, but we will be the last one left standing. And hopefully by then we'll figure out how to make this work, which is a terrible mm. business strategy, by the way. But yeah. <laughs> it's all about gaining market share in a relatively new or young industry. And, and as this market is maturing, then trying to assess the risk. And, and I think we can talk in cyber insurance at another point in the future. I'm still fascinated by it and, and, and talk with several cyber insurance companies. I think the future of cyber insurance should change, um, but that's not for this podcast. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think the way that we've been looking at this is is off and, and there are a couple of models out there that I think are are more interesting and in, in how do you reduce the risk to to a an underwriter?
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for that context too about you know the three shots at goal. You know it's important to look at the opportunities with that with that mindset too, I think, especially early on where you might be overwhelmed by the different paths you can take, but to actually think about it, well, I've got a number of shots at success here. Which one is it going to be? I think that flipping the switch to be a little more positive in that way is really important for early stage founders.
1: But then, but then to focus it down, you know, we found, you know, you'll, you'll, and this is, this is true of, you know, depending on what your product is in cybersecurity, right? There's, there are people who are really bad at security. They know they're really bad at security. So think um, municipalities and governments and universities. Um, Mm -hmm. And and it has to do with many factors. And we can go into that at at maybe another point, but they also don't have the money or resources to buy. Yeah. And so then you go to the other end of the spectrum that you have people who are absolutely concerned and, and security is becoming more and more front of mind from not just, you, you know, it used to be just a, from a, Tech perspective now it's from the boardroom and and risk profile of of an organization. So financial services are really focused on on security and they are are good at it, but they're always looking for those edge cases. Mm -hmm. Um, But also at the same time, they're constantly bombarded with snake oil. Right? I've got this new next new miracle drug that you will cure all your
0: ailments.
1: And and so how do you separate that? And how can you be a not be all things to all people because if you if you do that then you lack that focus and you lack that story. I get a lot of of startups that say yeah we can we can do all these things. I said then what is it that you do? You know, and you can't really articulate your company very well because you say yeah we can solve all these problems. And I much rather hear the pitches this is the pain that you have. We're going to solve that pain. We can do other things too see this pain. Mm -hmm. I want you to focus on this pain. This is really important to you. This is what's keeping you up at night. I can make you get some sleep.
0: Back to the painkillers. I love that was come full circle. Yeah, always
1: is about, I mean, to me, that is the core crux of any business is solving problems for people.
0: Absolutely. Wes, on that note, I'd love to wrap up this fascinating conversation with a round of quick fire questions so this is how we um like to wrap up the scirise podcast and i will send these your way and come back with your responses as quickly or not as you like
1: i'm not a quick person
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay number one your biggest failure
1: oh my biggest failure you know i there was a, a cybersecurity company I had started that we've put on ice that, uh, when I moved down here to Australia, um, we ran into a technical hurdle. It was going to cost a, a bit of money to fix. And so everything kind of just put on ice. So that's probably my, my, my biggest business failure.
0: Well, hopefully the fact that it's on ice means it may not be on ice forever.
1: It, it, it may not be. Um, it, yeah, it's, it, it's a big problem out there. It, it, st- it stopped ransomware from working. And so with, ransomware is just eating up a lot of businesses, especially as, as we uh, have gone from COVID to, to work from home. There, there's a lot of vulnerabilities out there.
0: Yes. Okay, Well, we'll watch this space. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Your greatest achievement...
1: Well, serendipity comes into play here. You could say Quadmetrics Mm -hmm. in the sense of uh, we took a a company, uh, a technology that's sitting inside the university, turned it into a product, launched that company, if you will, and within 15 months sold it to a public company. Yeah. That's That's that's, incredible. (laughs) That's a little bit, uh, you know, in in that time was profiled by the Wall Street Journal and, and was named a cool vendor by Gardner and all these sort of things in that short period of time.
0: Yeah, 15 months. That's such an impressive turnaround.
1: It's, definitely it, worthy of a great... Serendipity is always at always play here, right? You know, timing the <laughs> yes. market and, and articulating the, the right message at the right time.
0: Yes, definitely.
1: Your favourite book? Well, that's a tough one because there's no such thing as favourite. I, I will say that many years ago when I first read Clayton Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma, that kind of... I've always had a passion for innovation in... Um, mm-hmm small and large companies and how the sort of like starting with maybe his PhD work and moving towards uh, his, his books around how and why the disruptor was often not coming from the same industry or was, was not the one developing that product in that space. And why was it, why was it, why was it an outsider that always fascinated. Mm-hmm. So, so I, for me early on, I, there's, I mean, there's things that, that we can kind of argue about Clayton Christensen, but um but, yeah, that was I think maybe seminal for me in my young career of of thinking about things and 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 keeping me on the on the the sort of innovation side of of startup path
0: love that the outsider point of view very interesting the startup you wish you'd founded
1: <laughs> I mean we could just point to anyone that's highly successful um, <laughs> yeah. I, I I've always I, it's you know Amazon is always a fun one and and in starting with it as a marketplace for books and then the seeing what it's evolved to and and mm. how clever they have been to keep adapting and changing their business model with AWS. And now they're, they're generating content. It's really sort of interesting to see, uh, you know, I, I could say, I, I wish I found it, but I, you know, it's it's fun to watch companies that are that continue to press the, the, the boundaries going forward and those sort of stuff. You could say, you know, Google and all these other things as well, and then the companies they've acquired. But I like the the, the notion of, of kind of marketplace and, and then turn around and becoming a supplier themselves and creating certain products and and the data that they have. And, and you know, of course, it's kind of hard to, to start a tech business and, and use a high quality you know, web services that's not Amazon, right? Um,
0: yeah.
1: So, yeah. yeah, I think that that's a, that's a Boy, that would be great if i, I started that one
0: <laughs> the breadth of the things that amazon touches um but also the quality you know with which they execute is very impressive
1: yeah and and i think australians don't see it as much you know an american being an american in, and and having experienced it there the oh yeah how how often it is used in in a way that you know we still use, let's say, eBay or something like that here in Australia, and it, most people are, are selling or reselling through, through Amazon, and you can find anything and it sort of turns up the next day at your doorstep.
0: Oh, absolutely. I was fortunate enough to spend a few years in the States, and <laughs> that is definitely one of the conveniences that I, that I miss for sure. <laughs> the best piece of advice you've ever received
1: yeah there, I mean there's, there's always tons of, of those um, and, and I was reminded of this recently. a CEO that I knew Dave Olson who was actually we mentioned the, the flow cytometer uh, accuracy was a co-founder there and he had he's a serial entrepreneur has uh, done this many times at the time he told me he was talking about me keeping your your data room you're being ready for the sale. He was talking about binders at the time, right? Being able to tell all your employment agreements, I you know, I put a copy of it and I put it in a binder. And and I that always stuck with me. And so when I started Quadmetrics, we I started a a data room for for you know a deal room for due diligence, whether it be investor or acquisition. So when it came time when when FICO made the offer on us, everything we we needed was all in one place. We were using Google Drive um, and when we required they you know they just gave us a a box account and and you know everything was labeled the way they wanted to we just had to just drag and drop things in or rename folders for them and and mm. everything was there so every employment agreement every you know data license and, and that kind of stuff because we were not only scanning the internet ourselves but we were buying data from or or using free data from from places and every time we were using that data we had the uh, terms of of use I would just grab that and my CTO would put that kind of stuff in there, you know, all of our, our board documents, all of our, you know, whatever it may be, we had a employee leave. And so I had the, the, you know, the, the termination agreement and all that kind of stuff. Uh, All of that was in there, all the, you know, the, the basic stuff. And, you know, we had, we signed a license, we were renegotiated that license with the University of Michigan. So all those things were in there so that just made everything clean and it helps me focus my organization. I see everything that's in there. I see what is missing and, and, and try to fill it in and that kind of stuff. So I think that is a best way to, in a way, keep yourself organized. And and that was probably one of the better advice I got, but I got a lot of really good advice. So um, that's the point of having mentors.
0: Well, I love that too, because it's simple in a sense. It's essentially just keeping the house in order so that when something comes, whatever that might be, then everything's accessible and you save yourself the pain of having to, you know, get everything in order. So I love that it's simple, but it's important to remember and, and be reminded of by, by people (laughs) outside of the network often, because yeah, it's something so simple can easily be forgotten. I love that.
1: And it makes you think, you know, if, if you were a, a software company like we were, and we were using multiple different software packages to do very specific things, you make sure that, that you have the right to commercially resell those. And so you, by default, as you're putting stuff in there, you're remembering, the reason I'm putting this in there is make sure that I have the rights to commercialize this open source information. And it mm-hmm. says so right here. See, we, we can do this for, for commercial purposes as well. And so having that there allowed you to continue to think about all the things that are going to be important. And that when it came time, because when and I don't know if your your listeners will, will have ever gone through the process of of you know due diligence, whether it be investor or whether it be um, acquisition. When it comes time, focus on on running your business at the same time of selling your company is really really hard. You're being pulled mm-hmm. in multiple directions. And, you know, it suspends a lot of other things that you're doing. And so you really have to, if you don't have that and you're scrambling around to find find these documents and, and oh, make sure that that board document actually did get signed because it's, you know, otherwise you don't get the option grant to that, you know, employee, then that becomes a, a big deal.
0: Yeah. I think that's wonderful advice for any entrepreneurs is just, and like you said, due diligence, whether it's for fundraising, even you know the procurement compliance aspect of selling into enterprise it's just important to keep track of all of that whereas this has been fantastic full of so much tangible advice for founders out there and a really fascinating look at this kind of academic deeply technical startup entrepreneur world all combined which i've just loved so thank you so much for your time and advice today
1: oh, absolutely it was fun
0: Yes, definitely, definitely fun. Thanks, Wes.
1: Thank you.
0: What a fantastic chat from an entrepreneur who has been doing this for many, many years. Great tangible advice for early stage founders right there. If you'd like some more information about Cyrise, please head to cyrise.co, that's C-Y-R-I-S-E dot C-O. Chat to you next time.